You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I want you to take your scriptures, find the book of Joshua, chapter 9. If you don't have one with you, find one in a chair, and we want to listen to God's word, see what he has to say in this next chapter as we go through Joshua, as you're on your way to Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. We've got one picture from last week, uh, two are turned in. This is Lincoln's work, right, from the promised land. And he's got in there, um, in the middle picture, it's, I think it's refuel, right? We talked about kind of this resting, refueling as they went to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and, and hearing again from God and rejoicing in Him and worshiping Him. And so he's got them refueling here at the I think that's a mountain there, and then the, the commandments or Joshua writing the law is where we were, and that's right where we were at the end of chapter 8 last week in, in uh, Joshua, and this week we continue on to chapter 9. It is a privilege to, um, I know what I was praying about, speaking about the privilege that we have here to open the Word of God before us. We and, and to know the Savior um, who saves us. We are so blessed to know Him. So we would just want to hear from His Word um, and then listen to Him. So I'm going to read chapter 9. I'm just going to read chap, uh, verses 1 through 15. Just 1 through 15 for today. And we'll look at more as we go along. So Joshua 9 says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country... And in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But, but now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions 
but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Let me pray again for our time. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to ask your counsel. So we ask your counselor, the Holy Spirit, to do a work within our time together in your word. Father, that your name would be exalted and lifted high and your word, all of it, Lord, would be devoured with delight, with thankfulness. And you would lead us to our great uh, Savior again, Jesus Christ. So guide us, Lord, by your spirit uh, through your word right now, Lord. Illuminate what you would have us to understand, the meaning of the text, what is here that we need to know, that the generations have needed to know about you and seeking your counsel. So guide our time, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to read you a quote from one commentator. I've quoted a few times before, many times before, A.W. Pink. And, and here's a quote just on, kind of in general to give us a general view of Joshua. And then as we, as we narrow down to chapter 9, he says, The book of Joshua contains very much more than a mere historical record of Israel's conquest and occupation of the land of Canaan. Namely, a shadowing forth of that spiritual warfare unto which Christians are called. Believers in Christ are not only witnesses unto Him, showing forth His praises, reflecting the moral perfections of His character, disciples, but they are also soldiers of Jesus Christ. And as such, it is especially to the book of Joshua that they should turn for instruction, inspiration, warning, and encouragement. I begin with this quote because it's helpful as we uh, read these accounts. We're reading more than just a historical, yes, Gibeon came against Joshua and this sort of thing, just a historical type, historical record. We see in the man's struggle with with sin, in our case today, really the lack of seeking the Lord's guidance and the consequences of that. And yet we see throughout Scripture the guiding hand of the Lord, His sovereign hand in, in all things, even, even these types of things that we see today. So today we're resuming this narrative. The covenant renewal ceremony uh, was just before in chapter, the end of chapter 8, just took place, and, and now a new problem presents itself. And two groups here are uh, defined at the beginning of this passage with, with really two radically different ideas of how to deal with these Israelites, how to deal with this foreign invader. And there's two different ideas. So if you look, I'm gonna, I won't read them again, but verses 1 through 2 give us the one group. There's one group here. They describe this multitude, multitude of Kings gathering together, all the ites, you know, the Amorites, Hittites, you get the joke, the mosquito bites, they're all the ites of, of these people. And, and they're all these different people that have gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. The landscape of the nations listed here that shows within a general, there's a kind of a general land of Canaan, you might say, existed what, think here, are city-states. Think of small countries, each with their own city, their own king. And so these are kind of smaller, maybe in a general land, but, but smaller groupings. And their plan is to fight. 
Now, it says uh, they had heard of this, and what they heard of, not quite sure, what did they hear? Did they hear of the events at Jericho and Ai? I think that's really probable of what these kings heard of that got them to rally to fight. But perhaps they also heard of this covenant ceremony that took place between these two mountains. They heard what Israel and Joshua were doing and this God that they were serving. Maybe they were worried about that. They, they heard. Uh, Deuteronomy, you don't have to go there, I'll, I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy twenty sixteen through 18. Moses has a command for the people and for the enemies when they enter the land. So Moses gives this before they've entered the promised land. And here's what he had said about entering this land. He says, but, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And here it is. See if he's listed these. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Within this list, back in Deuteronomy, is the same city-state, same people listed in Joshua 9, verse 1 here. And they gather as one, united, uh, you know, united parties to fight with Israel. For Israel, this enemy is much more recognizable. I mean, we all recognize they gather together, they're coming to fight, very recognizable. It's clear what they want to do. But then, verses 3 through 5, give us this unique city of the Hivites, the city of Gibeon. A city we find out that they would rather be servants in Israel than fight them in battle. And their deception is what is potentially dangerous to Israel. What are they doing? They're they're seeking a covenant. Let's look on a map. I do have just one picture, a map. Again, these lovely... Maps. If you sit in the front row, they're much clearer. Uh, but uh, anyway, you can see some of the red up there. Um, to the left, the furthest most left dot is Gibeon, kind of, they say, six miles north, what, west of Jerusalem there. And thank you, red pointer out of the sky. And then Gilgal over to the east along the Jordan, that's kind of home base. That's camp for Israel. It's where everything's at. So here's Gibeon. They're, they're quite close to Gilgal. But they've got a plan going, and that gives you just an idea. And so they hear too. Verse 3 says, they, they heard what Joshua did to Jericho, to Ai. But instead of planning to fight, they planned, uh, hey, let's, jo- let's not fight these. Let's join them. Or let's be their servants. And so they act with cunning, verse 4 says. That's what the ESV says. Uh, NASB says they acted craftily. Uh, NIV, they resorted to a, to a ruse. King James says they did work wily. These were wily guys. They were doing a wily work, uh, planning this out to go deceive Israel here. So right off the bat, the narrator, for us now, the reader, and for whoever would read this, they're cluing us in of the deceptiveness of Gibeon. We're clued in before, long before Israel is. And we've got an idea. Now, 
it's unclear. I I'm not clear on is this cleverness intended to like infiltrate and then defeat Israel? Is this kind of we're going to work you know, kind of like the ambush of Israel with AI? Are we going to work our way in and then we'll defeat them? Um, or perhaps is this nation fearing God rightly going about it by a deceptive way that they would be spared? Now, my opinion is they're, they're going, they, they desire to be spared. I think they truly had heard of the Lord. They heard, but instead of resorting to the other kings and joining to fight, they're going to they're gonna do a different way. They have a different idea. Maybe you can see the picture in Gibeon. You know, everybody's, hey, you got any old shoes? Where's your old shoes, Bob? And they find, you know, and all these guys bring out their old shoes, their old garments. Um, I read somewhere they found some pottery that this place was even known for, for making wine, that sort of thing. So they would have a bunch maybe of old wineskins. So they find them all, their worst-looking clothes, gather them all up. But again, I, th- I think they're acting this way because of what they've heard of, what God has done to those nations in the path of Israel. And they're looking to, to, to be free from that, to, to make peace rather than war here. In this case. So there's one set of kings. Fight. And that of Gibeon. Let's, let's deceive them. Which is not good. Let's deceive and, maybe, and we'll live. So we turn to verses 6 through 8. And, and there's sort of a back and forth exchange as the Gibeonites now come to Israel. Look at uh, verse 6. I'll read 6 through 8. So here they got all their worn out, everything's on. I mean, we are dressed up like we've been out here for a long time. Verse 6, And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from there's two things i want to point out in this kind of this exchange this back and forth here we are make a covenant we don't know who you are we're your servants well where are you from that sort of idea kind of this back and forth two things to point out one is gibeon desires israel make a covenant i think that's significant they're desiring israel we want to make a covenant with you cut a covenant and then also they offer themselves as servants so please make an agreement an agreement between your nation, our nation, we want a covenant. Perhaps they've heard this is a covenant keep. They have a covenant keeping God. They will keep their word. If we make peace, it's going to happen. But then they also say, we are your servants. So about the covenant, it's worth noting, I think, here in the text, we are right after the ceremony at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, where the idea of covenant is brought up there. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, the blessing, the curse, these things. But here the covenant is not with God, but it's with this people group. I think the Gibeonites know of Israel. And, and maybe like we said, they know this, this obligation that maybe Israel will keep their covenant. Their hope is that this will, this will be the case. So are they close by? It's no small request so the people of israel they ask in verse 7 they ask in verse 7 perhaps you live among us how can we make a covenant with you and they're asking because this really matters to them 
This matters. I do want you to look here. Just go back to Exodus 34. They're asking where given, where are you from really matters, and we find it in Exodus 34. And this will show us why it matters. It's Exodus 34, 11. This comes at a place in Exodus 34, 11, after Israel, they've already rebelled at Mount Sinai, made that golden calf, and the Lord is reestablishing the covenant. And, and then these words come regarding the promised land. And so I'll read 11 through 16. So God says here, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the... Here they are. Here's the ites again. Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You see here why this is so important to know where these people are from. Are you part of this land? Are you from this land? Because if you are, what's our mandate from Exodus 34? We need to wipe you out because you're going to infiltrate and you're going to affect the ranks of our people. You're going to cause us to temptation to come after and whore after other gods. Now others, it's okay. If you're not of this land, there were provisions to make covenants with others, but not the inhabitants of the land. And so I think in the one writing the book of Joshua, be it Joshua, some other writer. Verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, I think just clues the reader in to say, hey, these guys are from here. You guys should not be entertaining a thought of a covenant here. And it seems that Gibeon was one of the cities of the Hivites. And so Israel doesn't know this, but we do. The reader knows this, and we realize what Israel is walking into. But... They reply to Joshua, you know, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant? They reply, we are your servants. They actually allude to this three times. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, this, this servanthood idea. I wonder if these words intended to entice Israel to welcome them. We're not enemies. We want to be your servant. So Joshua then asks again, Verse 8, he says, who are you? Where do you come from? He wants to at least investigate, ask some questions. I mean, he's, I think they're trying to make sure they're not making a covenant with the wrong people, as we looked at in Exodus 34. So here it seems Israel does not make a super hasty decision. They're, they're, they're cautious. There are some good questions they're asking. But then the answer of the Gibeonites just never really gets to the question of Joshua, never really answers it. The answer to Joshua's question comes in verse 9. They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have, have come. Where's that? It's just distant. What they take more time on comes, I think, in three parts in verses 9 through 13. Kind of the... Here's why we've come. 
kind of the, the, the purpose of our coming. What was the plan? Why, why are we coming? Why? What purpose? And then, really, the proof. Here's, here's how you can tell we've come from a long ways away. So the first is in verses 9 through 10. So they said to him, Joshua's questions, I already said that come from a distant country, your servants have come. Why? Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of Him. Well, that's true. We're just a little closer than we thought. And all that He did in Egypt and all that He did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So they've heard. Here they invoke the name of the Lord. And to their credit, it, it seems like perhaps they have a sincere desire to worship or at least fear the Lord or save their own necks. We don't, I don't know for sure. But their reasoning for this, this long journey is because of what they've heard. Perhaps... Them speaking this way about the Lord, we've heard of your Lord, perhaps hearing them speak this way made Israel kind of put the guard down. In fact, some of what they say sounds quite familiar to what Rahab had said to the spies in Jericho. Again, it's hard to tell the true motive here of the Gibeonites, but at least their, their talk of God, we wonder, did it cloud the judgment of Israel? I mean, they're saying all the right things, Right? And there's some application, even for us. It's good to be cautious of those that we can get all the right answers from. They say things the right way. Wow, they're talking about our God like He's mighty, and so maybe they're with, you know, maybe this is, maybe they are from a ways away, and, and they're, they're speaking like what we want to hear. And yet again, as, as we've seen, we've read already, they gave no voice to the Lord in this manner. And so verse 11 speaks then, of their plan. So they reveal, you know, to, to them, here's their plan, although it's, you know, half the plan. So our elders, verse 11, and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So they go, they explain, our elders, our inhabitants of the land, they sent us. We desire to make a covenant with you. And then the proof is laid out for them. 12 uh, through 13. I mean, here's the proof as, as I read it here. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey and the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. You know, I don't know about store bread, at least good white gummy bread if it gets crumbly, I suppose after time. But homemade bread gets crumbly over time. And you know the bottom of the bag where the homemade bread kind of just dries out after time and it's crumbly. That's a picture maybe of this crumbly. I think one translation might even call it uh, moldy bread, whatever it is. But here's the proof. We've got crumbly bread. I mean, look at this bread. You know, this proves we're, we're from a long ways away. Verse 13, these wineskins, they were new when we filled them. Behold, they burst. The garments, sandals of ours, they're worn out from the very long journey. And so they give this, this proof of their journey, saying we're from a distant country, not being very specific, but you can believe us. I mean, look at what we're wearing. 
So we get to verse 14. I think the verse that really gets to the heart, not so much of Gibeon's problem, but that of Israel. Of Israel. Verse 14 sort of preempts verse 15 and the actions of Joshua. It's interesting, not, um, not every passage of Scripture is it, is it as clear, but this is pretty clear. I mean, you want to... What's the point of this passage? You've got to, you know, the men took, and, and this, I think verse 14, gets us to what's going on. So look at 14. So the men, so now we're with Israel, I believe. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Now, I don't think here it means they took provisions and said, okay, we'll take all those and, and eat them. I'm not sure they're up for eating crumbly, moldy bread. That's not what they're doing. I think it means they took them as, they took them as proof. They took these as proof that, okay, it looks like you're from a land far away. We'll take your word on it. That's what I think was going on. One commentary says, they contented themselves with taking some of the bread that was shown them and tasting it as if the dry, moldy bread furnished a safe guarantee of the truth of the words of these foreign ambassadors. Here's the truth. Moldy to me, I bet they're from a long ways away. Okay? I think the point, yeah, again, physical proof for them. It became enough evidence to say they're from a ways away. But then we see they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Literally, the mouth of the Lord they did not ask. God has a mouth to speak His words. They did not ask, what, Lord, does your mouth say? His words. They, they were to be hearing the voice of God, especially Joshua. He was supposed to consult with Eliezer about this. Um, Numbers 27, 21 talks about in Joshua's commissioning before the Lord, before they ever entered the, the land, and Moses kind of passes the mantle on to Joshua said this, And he, Joshua, shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. I think it's A.W. Pink that pointed out, even here, you, you remember Israel's in Gilgal, where they where they meet them. They come to this camp at Gilgal. What else is in Gilgal? The tabernacle. The means are there for Joshua to ask. The Eliezer, everybody's there. It's not like they're in some remote part of the country where they cannot, you know, we just don't have any means to do this. Everything is at their disposal to ask, but they do not. They don't ask. Their words seem convincing enough the words of the Gibeonites. And so look at verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Verse 15, really, it's all one result of verse 14. They took Gibeon, a foreign nation, just took them at their word, no counsel of the Lord. And so the result, they make peace they make a covenant, a, a sworn oath to the people who actually live so nearby. They're really the inhabitants of the land that they're supposed to destroy. 
Israel had been duped. They failed to ask, to inquire, to seek God's counsel. Now, now we're going to look at next week, they're going to live with this decision. So we might ask here, how could Joshua and Israel fail here when it seems like they should have known better? I mean, it's crumbly bread. Isn't there something more? Didn't they know better? One real obvious answer, um, amongst others, is they lacked chapter 9 before them. They did not have verses 3 through 5 to read and say, these guys are coming your way. They brought all the old garments, all the old wineskins. They're coming your way. They didn't have that to read. We get all that as the reader. We get the background information to see the story develop, see that they should have inquired of God, but they didn't. I think it points out, A.W. Pink here notes here, he points out elsewhere in Scripture that uh, points out the lapses not of young and inexperienced disciples, but those of mature saints. I mean, you know, how could Joshua fail? There's other, there's Abraham, there's Peter, here's Joshua. The lapses here, you, you might say, well, well, they're young, they're inexperienced. No, they're just coming from blessing and curse. They know Joshua knows he's leading them. And yet even here, they did not make a good judgment. They did not seek the Lord, which tells us we too, we ought to be careful if we've, we say, yeah, we've experienced this before, or we're, or we're older, to be really on guard and careful that our experience not say, i got experience. I can figure this out. I'll do it on my own. Why'd they fail when it seems they should have known better? I think they walked by sight and not by faith. They took physical, tangible evidence rather than being led by the Spirit of God. So their eyes, physical eyes, physical ears, rather than hearing the Word of God to lead them, their eyes led them. And we too were captured by what we see with our eyes and what sounds right to our ears. And we can quickly make a covenant or a promise or what feels good. And that's how we make these covenants and we don't seek the Lord. I mean, there's, there's areas of this. Think of the area of, of marriage or of dating. There's a call here to take time in all of these to prepare to, to, when we make a vow to be married that we're making that for life, a covenant for life, to be thoughtful, to be seeking God, or saying, I love you to somebody that we're dating and we don't, we're not even close to marriage yet. I, I made this mistake when I was dating Hannah. It's not, I'm not at mistake to love her, but I said it when we had been dating three months. And uh, I should have waited. I mean, what is, what is love? I mean, till death to us, was I ready at that point? I was probably just feeling good. Like, what? Well, it's three months. It's a long time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, not that long. So there's an idea to be careful. Our oaths, the vows we make to take seriously, to approach them with a certain sort of of fear and trembling rather than a, than a quickness to say, I promise. And parents, we've, we've learned that. My kids know. I will say, I will be very careful to not say, I promise we will go out to eat tonight. Like if, you know, I don't know, Lord willing, I <laughs> forget what I say, but try not to promise unless I'm going to follow through on that. 
And they're great. Kids are wonderful at remembering what we promise. But in any decision, we need to be people seeking God's wisdom, which is found in His Word. To be led by His Spirit. To be praying, saying, Lord, what would You have me do? There's also here just one more. Why did they fail? What, what was behind this? And these aren't exhaustive reasons, but there is the danger of spiritually significant moments. There's the danger here for Israel of a spiritually significant moment. That is, they just had this covenant renewal ceremony at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, blessings, cursings, rejoicing, eating, this whole thing. And we're instantly, now the narrative's right here, and they're faced with these people kind of testing that. Here's what, again, one more quote from A.W. Pink. He says, It is when God's people are most conscious of their obligations, when most determined by grace to discharge the same, when most zealous in fully consecrating themselves unto the Lord, that the ire of Satan breaks out the fierce. You know, it's like, I surrender all. And that's the moment to say, be on your guard. Will you? Are you? Be cautious. So here in Israel, again, they've just come from this ceremony of covenant, these mountains ready to continue, be fully devoted to God as we titled those sermons. And yet again, for every three steps forward, there's a couple steps back for Israel, which is why this is instructive to us as believers in the Lord. So the question for you, for me, is where are you going What are you doing in which you have not sought the counsel of the Lord? Where, what, do you need to seek God's counsel? I'll give you two thoughts on this. One regarding unholy and ill-informed decisions of our past. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over unholy and ill-informed decisions. Decisions. Though Israel and Joshua, though they erred to inquire the Lord, that was an error of them. They should not, they should have inquired. God used this instance in another nation, the Hivite Gibeonites. They were saved out of utter destruction. And God sovereignly spared this people by His grace. He, I think He worked a fear of God in them that they would rather serve the Israelites. We're going to learn later just what they did. I think they were, yeah, they were cutters of wood and drawers of water. They served. I think for them, they'd rather be serving with this group than, than be dead. So God is sovereign even over our bad decisions, our bad oaths, or what we vowed and we go, oh, I shouldn't have made that. He leads through those things. We can take heart in that. And number two, obviously then, to seek the counsel of the Lord. Psalm 1, 1 through 1-2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Donald Gray Barnhouse has this quote, and I think it's helpful as we think of seeking the counsel of the Lord. He says, I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God consists in being prepared to do it before you know what it is. 
That makes sense? I'll read it one more time. I can say from experience that 95% of knowing the will of God, in other words, what do I do, Lord? What do I do in this situation? 95% of it consists in being prepared to do it before you know what it is. Lord, I don't know what to do, but what you ask and what you direct and what you guide, I will do, being prepared to do it beforehand. So where we have erred, where we've made quick, rash, unhealthy decisions, may we confess those and then savor the gospel of Jesus Christ who not only forgives our sin, but He is true wisdom from God. And then trust in God's sovereign hand, even over our wrongly concluded decisions. And where we think, I can decide this on my own. I don't need God's help. May we... Be aware of the danger of not seeking the face of God, of of abandoning His good and right counsel. Let me pray for us. There's a reason, Lord, your Scripture says pray without ceasing. Father, I don't know all the hearts here. I know my own. So I pray for them, knowing my own and mine, that we would be in prayer. We would be a people seeking your counsel. Perhaps even for things we think are so insignificant, Lord, that you would be leading us daily, Lord, interactions with believers and unbelievers, being led by your Spirit, Lord, and anchored to your Word that we would be those people who 95% of the work is done because we've already, we've already decided in our hearts by Your grace that we're going to follow Your Word no matter where it takes us, no matter the persecution we may endure. But Lord, also help us to be a people who seek Your counsel, who do not go forward, Lord, in our own pride or our age or our experience and say we've done this before, we know what to do. Father, protect us. Lord, help others in our lives to come around us to say, have you prayed about this? Have you sought the Lord? Lord, may we be a church that encourages one another, that gives good counsel to one another, not just even of our own man-made ideas, but from Your Word. So that takes knowing Your Word. And so I pray, Lord, as a people here at Bethany, we would delight in the law of our God and delight in the One who fulfills it all, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for any feeling under the condemnation of rashly made vows and failure in decisions of the past, Lord, may may those be confessed and then move on. Lord, to move on and trust Your sovereign hand. And even, even Joseph's brothers that intended their work for evil, You used it for good. May there be hope because we hope in a sovereign, all-powerful, all-controlling.